CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 2 Austria Visegrad 4 and the Western Balkans Part 1 Talking about the Southeast and European region with Martin Ugrosti Welcome to everyone in the second podcast of CEE Central Europe Explained. My name is Daniela Neubacher. I am research associate at the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. In the last episode of CEE, we discussed about the actual meaning of Central Europe. Today's podcast, we will focus on Austria, Visegrad 4 and the Western Balkans. Together with Martin Ugrosti, Director of the Institute of Foreign Affairs and Trade in Budapest, we will look at the relationships between the Central and Southeast European region, the Western Balkans enlargement, and the legacies from the breakup of former Yugoslavia. Martin, thank you very much for joining our podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. I would like to start with a very basic question on the Central European history. IDM has recently published its thematic issue Info Europa on memory culture in Central Eastern Europe and Southeastern Europe. And we spent a lot of time and heard a lot of stories on the conflicted and also on shared collective memories in the region. This year, Hungary, where your institute is located, commemorates the East Treaties of Trianon from 1920, which is also a very important issue that still shapes the country's politics and also the country's relations to its neighbors. So I'm generally interested in which historical legacies are kind of still shaping the regional cooperation and what needs to be overcome to tackle current issues and future of the region. It's a very good question and it's a bit funny that just yesterday I finished a book about the Treaty of Trianon, so it's a pretty recent memories on that. What is interesting and I think what is still part of the issue in the region is that Austrians and Hungarians regard the Austro-Hungarian Empire as something positive for the region because uh, we were on top, to be very honest. Both the Austrians and the Hungarians were controlling a territory with many, many nationalities. The significant part of the myth of these nationalities is their self-identification vis-a-vis the Habsburg Empire. Maybe we can call it Habsburg Empire because that was the most important part. And in the First World War, that kind of loyalty to the emperor kept the forces together for some time. But as soon as the empire started to deteriorate, this kind of national awakenings took place and we ended up with the uh, peace treaties of 1920. And um, that has still impacted the regional cooperation to, to some extent, because up until today, for example, in the case of Hungary, we see millions of Hungarians are still living in neighboring countries who obviously used to live in the pre-1920 Hungary, but ended up in the neighboring countries as part of the peace treaty. And that has been a significant legacy for the last hundred years. We tend to think that on many occasions this is passé now. The history allowed us to overcome this and new integration and all these kind of convergence that took place in the region helped this. But we see that um, some questions remain unresolved today. But in the wider context, which connects to Austria as well, I think what is important that we do have a different historical perspective of the region than all the other countries who became independent after 1918. Both Austrians and Hungarians, in my opinion, if you allow me a bit of a self-criticism here, tend to look differently at the second half of the 19th century, which was the national awakening for, for all of the neighboring countries like Slovakia, Romania, Serbia, 
Croatia as well, and uh, tend to disregard a little bit of all the injustices which have been done to these nations over time, despite the fact that our neighbors, who in many occasions became our friends, fortunately, until today, do remember this period in a very different light. They are also aware of uh, some of the issues which uh, remain unresolved up until today. So you're saying that the history and the interpretation of history is very much shaping the foreign policy? Yes, uh, in the case of Hungary, I would very much argue for this because uh, since 1920, one of the major priorities of Hungarian foreign policy has been to look after the Hungarians living in neighboring countries. And we still cannot disregard that up until today because we're talking about by now not five million, but let's say two and a half, three million people in our immediate neighborhood. Having said that, it's the reality um, all the governments observe the inviolability of international borders. So it's not a question that anybody is seeking any kind of territory or rearrangement. But if you look at uh, how the minor rights of minorities, especially when it comes to the use of language and education, can be ensured, is something which remains uh, really important for Hungarian foreign policy. But I think the same applies to Austria to some extent with Zutirol and the rights of the German-speaking people in Northern Italy that, you know, some minimum levels of minority rights, especially those connected to culture and language, has to be observed. And I think the relationship between Austria and Italy provides a very good example of how, how this can work in practice. Um, of course, a little bit to the east, this is a bit more complicated, but we've been seeing very good progress with, with some of the neighboring countries. But once again, coming back to the original question, I think that both Austria and Hungary claim a, an intimate knowledge of the region, which comes from uh, the Habsburg Empire's past. And that gives us a, a special opportunity to engage with the countries of Southeast Europe because uh, we had some physical presence there and uh, we've been uh, dealing with the nations of the region for a very long time and we tend to know them very well, I would say. And I think if uh, we look at the disorientation of Yugoslavia after 1991, it's not a surprise that both Austria and Hungary tried to play a critical and stabilizing role in, in managing the conflict and that kind of engagement remains up until today. It's very good that you mentioned this because it kind of leads me to the next question. When we're talking about regional cooperation in Central Eastern Europe, then Austria mm -hmm. likes to stress its role as a bridge builder in between East and West. I mean, this has become more of an image than a reality, in my opinion. But I'm interested in how do you see it from the perspective of Hungary or also as an expert of the whole region. How would you describe Austria's role nowadays in the region? Is it still this bridge builder or has it changed its role? I think when it comes to EU enlargement and the stability, especially of the Western Balkans slash Southeast Europe, Austria has been critical in uh, managing these issues on the European level. Austria has joined the EU much earlier than Hungary, I think at least nine years earlier. Historically, it's not a great amount of time, but if you look at how young Hungarian democracy was back then, it was a critical difference. It was very visible that right from the start, when troubles started to emerge after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, Austria moved in and tried to manage these conflicts in a way which was very beneficial for the stability of Europe and especially Southeast Europe at the same time. And uh, being part of the Western world, if you may allow me this, because uh, Austria belonged more to the West than the East after the Soviet troops had left in 1955, it was much easier to project that kind of special expertise that Austria had in the region to do to other EU member states, of course, back then it was not necessarily the EU, and the entire Western community. So I'm absolutely not surprised that Austrian diplomats took part in the stabilization of Bosnia and Herzegovina after the Dayton ceasefire, for example, or that um, during the war in Yugoslavia, 
Austria was always pushing for uh, more international support, have tried to mediate between the parties. That was because it know the region very well and had personal contacts with, uh, with some of the people too who were leading these countries. And I think this was important to raise the issue to a higher level because uh, we see even today that some conflicts in and around Europe are just being forgotten because people just stop to take care after a few weeks of conflict. And Austria was crucial, in my opinion, in not allowing the disintegration of Yugoslavia to go into oblivion and uh, kept the issue on the agenda. And I think this kind of positive engagement remains up until today. And if we look at uh, the EU enlargement process, if we look at how different European institutions are engaging countries of the Western Balkans and Southeast Europe, we see that the support of Austria for these countries is very important up until today. And also that kind of uh, transfers of, of capital and expertise, which has allowed Austrian companies to expand to the region. And uh, that also applies to Eastern Europe and Central Eastern Europe in general after the regime change in 1990, has helped the modernization of the region to a large extent. When looking at the, at the Visegrad group now, the so-called V4 countries, Poland, Czechia, Slovakia and Hungary, how do you think, how has this multilateralism shaped the region? Which issues has the cooperation been fruitful, beneficial and in which there is still potential? I would say that uh, we should differentiate between three phases of the history of the V4. The first was up until the Euro-Atlantic integration in 2004, when all the V4 countries have joined the European Union. Before that, it was a vehicle to highlight the transition process and also to team our efforts to get closer to both the EU and NATO as soon as possible. Then we had a somewhat of an interim period between 2004 and uh, 2015, which was uh, marked by uh, less interest, if I may say, of the political dimension of the cooperation, also because everybody was too busy learning the rules of working within the EU. We tried to play with the big guys, even though the uh, benefits of regional cooperation were not so much highlighted. And then I think there came another turning point, which was the migration crisis of 2015, when uh, the V4 got famous and notorious, if you ask me, uh, once again, uh, both in the positive and the negative sense. And regardless of what we think about migration in general and the policies that these countries have been following since then, I think what all of the governments realized, all of the V4 governments realized, uh, regardless of their political background, was that there is some added value of cooperation also when it comes to protecting our interests on the EU level. And there are many issues on which the V4 do not agree, like uh, how to deal with Russia, what to do with migration, what should happen to the fishery questions within the European Union. But it serves as a very convenient tool to coordinate between the four capitals. And I think another issue is that the V4 is not exclusive in a way that if uh, a government engages uh, in cooperation with the V4, that doesn't mean that it cannot cooperate in different formats as well. So we see the Slavkov Triangle, for instance, with Austria, Slovakia and the Czech Republic. We used to see the Weimar Triangle with Germany, France and Poland, which is not working at the moment because of political reasons. We see also the Three Seas Initiative, which includes many countries in the CEE region, and we also have 17 plus one cooperation with China. What I think is really interesting, and despite all these multilateral formats that have emerged uh, in the last couple of years, the V4 is still very functional and it's a good vehicle to project our interests to the, to the debate in Brussels. And also I think it's useful that these four countries combined represent four votes in the European Council. 
And that brings some added value to the equation, especially if we are seeing some uh, conflictual questions arising, which doesn't mean that the V4 is always agreeing on all of the issues, but if we do agree on some of the issues, then why not use this format uh, to advance our interests on the European level, which is becoming a more and more politicized process at the end of the day. But besides the migration topic, you mentioned also the relations to Russia. And I mean, if you compare Hungary and Poland's stance on the relations to Russia, in how far do you see really a potential to find a common ground on this topic? The question is whether we have to. Of course, the country's physical proximity to Russia is very much in line with the threat perception we have vis-a-vis -vis Russia. So the fact that Hungary does not share a border with Russia helps us to uh, have a different point of view on this. But Austria is also having a different point of view on Russia than Poland or, or Latvia, for example. And I don't think that's a problem because we come from different countries and we have different interests when, when it comes to cooperation. Having said that, on the European level, all of the EU member states have voted for the maintenance of sanctions for the last six years. So there is a political cooperation on that. Uh, but I think it's not only the negative part which keeps the V4 together. So if we look about infrastructural issues, like how great it would be to have a high-speed rail from Warsaw to Budapest, for instance, which might also pass through Vienna, by the way, or whether we uh, talk about promoting investment in each other's countries and uh, promoting bilateral trade or trade within the V4 as a block, or other issues, our cultural exchanges, people-to-people -people contacts, we do see an added value to the cooperation. And if we look at the only standing organization of the V4, which is the International Visegrad Fund, which is headquartered in Bratislava, a significant job of theirs to promote people-to-people contacts because these countries have a long history spanning for the last thousand years and inadvertently we have some unresolved questions. And we have to deal with that and we have to deal with those problems deliberately And people-to-people -people exchanges, especially in the younger generations, help us a lot to diffuse these kind of potential issues which have been left between our nations for the last hundred years or, or maybe even before. Would it be a bit naive to think or to wish that the V4 could be a leverage for EU integration, in the end also EU enlargement? I don't think it's naive or unfounded. What we see is that on the EU level, the V4 countries and Austria as well have been very strong proponents of further EU enlargement. Of course, the emphasis is, is always somewhere else, because Poland is more focused on uh, the post-Soviet countries in its immediate neighborhood, like uh, Ukraine, for example, and in the association agreement and DCFTA, there are some good, good results there. Whereas uh, Slovakia, Austria, and Hungary is focusing more on the Western Balkans to solve um, the overall political and economic uh, situation there. But I'm not seeing this as a, as a threat. It's rather a very efficient way of cooperation that all of the V4 countries have different experience, different historical ties to third countries and, and different interests. These interests are not conflicting. They rather add up when it comes to promoting the idea of EU enlargement. And I think we shall not forget that one of the main achievements, or if you ask me, the most important achievement of the European Union is that it has brought peace to Europe finally, for at least for the last 70 years. And if we look at our immediate neighborhood into Eastern Europe and the Western Balkans, peace is what they actually need, and they need it badly. If we were able to defuse centuries-long uh, conflicts like the Franco-German one, or to some extent the Hungarian-Slovakian one, 
then this can be a very good example of how, for example, Serb and, and Bosnians and Croatians could deal with each other in the long run. And I think the added value of that will be political and economic stability, which will also be beneficial for the EU member states, because uh, that will also open up new markets, ensure that uh, these countries align with our values, and also that the EU will be enlarged and it will become a sustainable long-term project, provide for stability within Europe. Considering that the current Hungarian commissioner is responsible for neighborhood and enlargement policy, what do you think? Will there be a driving force in the negotiations in this very stagnant process at the moment? I think it's going to be up to him. We've met a few times and he's very dedicated to enlargement. Uh, the obstacle is rather with all the EU member states, if you wish, especially some of the EU member states in the West, because this will always be a political question whether we would let Albania or Serbia or Bosnia or Kosovo or other countries into the European Union. The economic argument, I think, is there. The political argument is there. The domestic political dimension of some of the societies in Western Europe is something which remains a question up until today. So if you would lead the French or the Dutch or the Belgians or the Spanish to a referendum on whether the European Union should include Kosovo or Macedonia or Bosnia, for example, I think it would be really hard to make the case that they should vote for yes and they should vote for enlargement. And of course, there's the argument, especially in France, saying that first we have to solve the internal problems of the EU and then we can enlarge. There is the other argument which the Central European countries are promoting that first we have to enlarge them, then uh, solve the internal problems. I think this is another question which will be easy to solve, but it will require a political answer. And uh, if we will really have a geopolitical European Commission, as Ursula von der Leyen has claimed from the beginning, that might be a good opportunity to have a geopolitical position on EU enlargement in the Western Balkans and Eastern Europe. And I think that should be a very powerful case for enlargement at the end. And it won't be up to the Hungarian commissioner to, to get this idea up and running. I'm quite sure that he and his international staff will do anything within, it, within their power to move uh, this, uh, this issue ahead. It's up to the EU and the candidate countries at the same time to, to move ahead and find political settlement to some of the questions which remain unresolved until today. And speaking of unresolved issues, because we were in the beginning speaking about Trianon and you mentioned that you prepared a publication on this, was there anything during this commemoration that was kind of steps of, of regional cooperation with Hungary's neighbors? So and common commemorations or tries mm -hmm. of, of common publications or events? This is a very hard topic even after 100 years, but if I would have to cite one very good example of how to deal with this, was the first visit of Igor Matovic, the new uh, Slovakian prime minister, to Hungary, which took place somewhere in the spring. Um, I cannot really recall it. I guess it was after the lockdown and by any chance. He came here. They talked about Trianon and all the problems. And they said that we still have some questions on which disagree, but uh, let's look to the future and let's try to find a solution to these questions. And I think that was a very positive sign and that can also show us how to deal with these problems in the long run, because at the end of the day, the framework of the European Union is changing the entire situation to a large extent. It's not a problem anymore that whether you can cross the, physically cross the border from Hungary to Slovakia without any administrative problems. Thanks to the Schengen zone, if you don't have the pandemic, that's not a problem anymore. Or uh, whether you can invest in the other country, whether you can open up shop there. 
Of course, there are some issues remaining like uh, regulations of the use of language and dual citizenship and these questions, which are highly symbolic at the same time, but practical cooperation became much more easier thanks to the EU membership of both of the countries. And uh, I'm quite sure that after some time, politics will follow and uh, sooner rather than later, the remaining issues will be, will be solved as well. Thanks to the fact that uh, once you have these nations meeting on a daily basis on, in, in everyday life, it will be very hard to keep these myths which are still out there about how evil the other nation is. So the direct personal exposure to different people helps us a big deal to overcome these kind of prejudices and the EU is really effective in that. And it's a kind of a cultural change, if you wish, which takes decades to be implemented. But we do see some positive movement in this regard, and Slovakia is a very good case in point. So overcoming historical legacies and conflict by regional cooperation. Something like that, yes. Also, yeah, also on the regional level, but also on the EU level. Obviously, the EU is not designed at dealing with the minor issues of Central Eastern Europe, but the tools in the EU framework are very useful to achieve that goal as well. So it's a complementary process on, on many different levels. And I think that it's very positive at the end of the day, because even those unresolved questions will be at least talked about and be dealt with. Okay, Martin, it was very interesting to talk to you about that. We could definitely talk more about this topic. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> This is a perfect basis for part two of our series on Austria, Visegrad 4 and the Western Balkans. We will then talk about minorities in the region. Thank you for listening to the second episode of CEE, Central Europe Explained, powered by Erste Group. We are looking forward to the next episode. See you soon. IDM Podcast Institute für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe European Perspectives Regional actions. Cooperation and expertise since 1953.